Hello, and welcome to the Science at All, a podcast about everything science sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm your host, Daniel Barron, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Justin Baker. Justin is the co-founding scientific director of the McLean Institute for Technology and Psychiatry, and he also directs the Laboratory for Functional Neuroimaging and Bioinformatics at McLean Hospital. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and in all of these capacities, he has the time to do research when he tries to combine his expertise in brain imaging with his expertise in deep multi-level phenotyping, something that we'll discuss in the podcast. Uh, He's a clinical psychiatrist with expertise in schizophrenia, bipolar, spectrum disorders, and other disorders. And I first learned of Justin and his work through a colleague at NYU at the beginning of my residency training. It was like the very beginning of my intern year. So I had read an article and uh, I'd actually written an article for Scientific American about this nascent field of digital diagnostics, something I thought was really cool but I didn't know much about yet. And my NYU friend told me to check out Justin's research. And at the time, Justin was using digital devices like smartwatches or Fitbits to monitor and trace patients' symptoms um, and try to combine that with biological measures like brain imaging. Uh, I invited myself to Justin's annual technology and psychiatry summit in Boston, which was really cool. He had, Justin had been able to invite out speakers from Apple and Google and uh, he had Tom Minsell give one of the keynotes. It was really exciting. And later that winter, I was invited to give a talk at McLean and asked to meet with Justin during the day. I remember us walking around uh, the McLean's campus, which even in the dead of winter was still quite lovely. And uh, he and I just kind of uh, patrolled the perimeter uh, until our fingers got cold and we had to go inside. And during this time, I really got to know Justin and he was able to uh, give me a lot of really useful advice to get through residency. And since that times, uh, I found him to be a very kind and generous mentor and friend. I'm really grateful to Justin for participating in this podcast and also in, in all the help that he's given me over the last few months when I was uh, writing a book about digital psychiatry, in which Justin's a, a big, big expert. This podcast uh, was filmed at the end of a very busy day for Justin. I had invited him out to Yale to give the psychiatry grand rounds and really enjoyed watching the audience and seeing how uh, impressed and kind of awakened they seem looking at all this research that Justin was doing and how he could use these digital devices to create clinically useful tools. And so I'm really excited to present this episode with Justin Baker. What was your residency program like? Like, what was your experience there? Like, were they, um, it sounds like they were trying to expose you to different researchers. And um, I'm curious how your desire to do research was received by maybe more dynamically minded uh, clinicians. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I had really been recruited to the program because of my research background, research, it wasn't my right. board scores. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't like I liked the clinical, but uh, you know, I think it was understood that you know uh, I was going to be doing some research uh, mm. at, at throughout it. But I think I tried to 
you know, nonetheless, like really immerse myself in the clinical programs. And I, mm. um, so, uh, you know, I think people were supportive in general, um, mm. of, of the research, uh, and, uh, you know, I think you you try to be a good citizen and do all the clinical work and really kind of try to learn from it um, while also not uh, letting that other part of your brain totally turn off and trying to make sure that you take it seriously enough to where like if something really important, then you're going to prioritize it. And um, even if it causes, you know, uh, people to give you like some feedback, Here's like, some shit. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of have to learn how to make those decisions for yourself. And uh, work with your allies and, and your program to to get the support because it's uh, you don't want to be the situation where it's just you arguing against everybody else. Um, but I, I was fortunate at the time to have been recruited by a program director who wanted to make research more uh, of a conspicuous part of the training program. Yeah. And so, even though I faced some obstacles, like I had my own initiative, I, I was able to create the projects. Um, but then as I got through residency, because um, I like many re like I had a really hard time getting much done during residency other yeah, than sure, you know sure. the stuff that I was sort of collecting by just uh, you know leveraging uh, those lab resources. But um, so after the residency was over, I I helped them to to compete for an R twenty five, which uh, at the time the program. Uh, didn't know about that mechanism, so you know, um, over the course of participating in some of those opportunities, like the NIMH's Brain Camp and uh, uh, you know, some of their programs, I I learned about that mechanism, and then um, I think uh, for me it was appealing to take on a role like that, so that in addition to the research, um, you know, coming out of residency, you knew you were going to have to piece things together with sort of additional responsibilities. But if, if for me, I could take my experience having kind of navigated this complex landscape uh, and sort of codify that in a program, then that would be both like enjoyable for me and I could begin using that to um, both to find students and also uh, just kind of uh, continue learning as I was trying to now compete for my own K award and things yeah. like that. So. Um, so I helped them to get that and they were successful at it. And then I helped to run the program for, for a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, one of those things where it's, it's nice to see your programs continue to kind of, uh, take off on their own. And then was able to kind of, as I was getting other funding or other projects came along, I, I was able to sort of take a, a, a less uh, directly involved role and then kind of gradually, um, you know, still, I'm still involved with the, with the program today, but. Um, I guess something else that I've uh, been skeptical of during my training, and, and you mentioned this, like, how do we know what we know, right? So mm -hmm. like in terms of uh, symptom assessment, a lot of your work now is measuring different symptoms, like getting back to like the, the kernel of behavior or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, at what point in your training did you start to wonder, like, whether even the words that we were using to describe conditions or, you know, like those sorts of dependencies that may or may not add up to bipolar disorder? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what was your, like, journey through that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, 
you know, I guess my experience of that was sort of, um, it, it, it didn't really make much sense that that was how we were doing the evaluations. But, uh, you know, when you're training to become a doctor or a psychiatrist, um, a big part of that is just, you know, what's the protocol? What do you need me to do? Sure. Um, yeah. Okay, you need me to ask these questions. Okay, you need, me to, you need me to write down what they say. Okay, like, okay, you're calling that pressured speech. Okay, you're calling this, you know, low mood or you're calling this constricted affect. Um, so I just saw it as a, we're just being trained to follow a protocol. I'm not going to question, you know, like it, on the one hand, like it's seemed really arbitrary and um, probably not biologically based, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's allows uh, for a certain kind of reliability that had a pragmatic utility. So um, I really try to just separate in my mind the pragmatic utility piece from uh, from what you know, but at the same time, each experience of this of like, you know, why are we doing this again? Okay, yeah, just yeah. that's fine, but just tell me, you know, uh, through each clinical experience, just kind of noticing the places where something could be more objective, um, and kind of filing that away a little bit, you know, just to say like. I can't possibly study everything right now, but like <laughs> sure. here, here's a way for me to say like, here, you know, this one is really kind of fuzzy and none of the clinicians know what this is, but they're constantly having to put it on paper um, and it's causing a lot of confusion or like something like, why are we documenting insight exactly? Like, what does that yeah, mean? Because <laughs> when I show a patient my note that says he has poor insight, he gets really upset. So like should we be using a different word than insight? You know, I know what we mean, but like, you know, so it just starts you thinking along the lines of like, are these assessments we're doing truly optimal? Yeah. You know, and it's like, and you kind of know that they're not, but you know that they're uh, sort of time honored and there's not a lot of evidence to do something different. And so, uh, you know, it's question is like, if we are going to change things, how, how would we know that we're changing them for the better and stuff? So, um, but the question, I, I think it's interesting because not everyone thinks along those lines, right? So I'm wondering if, I mean, I, I've noticed many residents don't, don't think along those lines, many attendings, you know, people who've been practicing for their entire career don't really question that. So, so there's a difference between becoming proficient at detecting pressured speech say and mm -hmm. wondering what exactly is pressured speech like at what frequency of words does it become pressured from normal or rapid or like where is the line yeah yeah and i wasn't i mean i wasn't necessarily preoccupied with that like in terms of defining the words but i think um i guess uh it was more about when you go from the stage of training where you're really just filling out the forms the way you know to fill them out. Getting the um, work done. To get the yeah. work done. To really trying to get to be better at it, to yeah. be more efficient at it, to kind of have a more intuition around, you know, these kind of master clinicians who could come into a room and then within a few seconds have zeroed in on on some core pathology. To me, that was really fascinating, right? It was yeah. like you know, we, we spend so much time getting these notes documented for billing and all these things. Um, 
but you know you have the clinicians who who are not doing that but they're able to kind of come in and and ask these incisive questions and get to the heart of the matter something i remember observing in intern year was there's a there's a clinician um tom duffy uh here who's a hematologist and i remember one morning it was like seven in the morning we've been this was a medicine rotation mm-hmm. we've been fretting over this one patient for half an hour you know mm-hmm. the whole team standing you know around and he came in and within 30 seconds it couldn't have been more than 30 seconds he knew what was wrong he ordered the tests and the test came back exactly as he predicted it yep. and i remember thinking like so here's a guy who was detecting some signal which mm-hmm. none of us were able to detect mm-hmm. but then there was another step where he was able to demonstrate that what he had detected was accurate and his prediction mm-hmm. he had mm-hmm. made a quantifiable prediction which right. he unquantified and i've had the same experience in psychiatry mm-hmm. where people with equal vigor can you know conviction state a formulation for mm-hmm. a case but then there's no way to really test whether that's accurate <laughs> well right i mean sometimes it is uh you know you can ask them you know so like if you have a sense that like I bet this is somebody with a trauma history. I'm just getting that vibe or there's something I'm picking up sure, on. Sure, yeah, yeah, Then yeah. you can ask, you can start to use your yeah. hypothesis generation to to basically gradually zero in on on that. So I think um so I think we we still as a, you know, good clinicians still do that, which is like within a very short amount of time they they use the gestalt sort of where you're looking, how you're moving to generate some hypotheses and then the questions are really kind of um, designed to, to zero in on that pathology. And then, um, you know, uh, is there like a lab test you can then run to be 100% generally no, but um, our tactic is usually like, well, if I'm right, then I should be able to use this meditation and then it mm. will get better. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a gap that, that needs to be filled. Um, well, it occurs to me now that a lot of your research in the digital phenotyping is more precisely defining the problem set. Right? So, like your work with accelerometers, uh, you know, speech analysis, facial expression, like these are all things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, well, obviously not the accelerometer, maybe mm-hmm. your geolocation, but certainly you can look at a patient analyze their face, see where their eyes are gazing, mm-hmm. you know, tell something about their body language or affect. Mm-hmm. And you don't need a number for that. Mm-hmm. But um, like maybe maybe you're trying to pin yourself down to a number. Like, can I, could I understand it like that? Or is... Yeah, I guess the way I would think about it is like my experience of being a psychiatry resident was like you're not very good at everything you're being trained to do because you're just learning. Yeah. And so – you get, but you get exposed to people who are really good at it, and then you're trying to see if you can figure out how to get good like that, and what exactly is it that they're doing that's different than what I can do, mm. and so um, the ability of really good psychiatrists to and neurologists to pick up on these subtle things and like be able to tell that this particular type of movement is a lithium tremor because it's in this frequency right. or that this particular kind of head nod is 
Parkinson's versus essential tremor just because of sort of like the precise dynamics or the way that the head is moving. Um, or that this person's speech is manic and this other person's is psychotic because of su very subtle dysarthrias that yeah. they're hearing. It was that being able to map between these sort of subtle constellation of features into sort of a, a much more coherent formula. That to me was what was really cool about it, which is like, I can kind of see that they're doing this, but like, I am not good at it. And this idea that I'm just going to like see a million patients and eventually get good at it seemed to me kind of crazy because then uh, like no one will get good until they've seen people for 10 years. Yeah. What about the um, half a million they see before? Exactly. And so, and so how is it that, you know, going to school in a teaching hospital, you know, you're not providing great care, but you're kind of like, wow, they're letting me see people, even though my skill set is so immature at this point. Eek. Um, <laughs> and just kind of feeling uncomfortable about that and thinking like, gosh, you know, if there was at least some ways of having some assistance in terms of some of these features, which should be quantifiable, like, shouldn't we be investing in that kind of thing? Even so that like somebody like me, could learn to do it way faster um, or there wouldn't be as much liability when I'm not trained up and stuff. Um, or something as basic as like, I'm going to have to go to my supervisor later and tell them how it went. Um, and if I feel like dodging it, I can just talk about neuroscience. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, <maybe. laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know. Or if I really want to learn that day, I could record the session and then play it for my supervisor and we could go through it in grave detail and I'll feel really embarrassed and yet like I will learn way more that day. Do they let you do that? Sure. Oh, they did not let us record. I would have loved to have done that. That'd I mean, I think great. in most programs, it's considered standard of care if you're learning psychotherapy to record your sessions. Not allowed. Um, <laughs> yes, that's unusual. I think, uh, I mean, it's a, it's definitely part of almost every uh, psychological training. And then, um, yeah, no, we were we were strongly encouraged, you know, with patient permission, you got to get them to sign yeah, release, yeah, sure. uh, to get audio recordings. Um, and in some cases, like video recordings of your sessions, because right. uh, unlike the old days where you would have a one-way mirror and you got somebody like really like watching you and making notes um you know here was a way to use technology in a very simple way which is just uh don't worry about scribbling down your process notes i mean there may be a reason to do that but let's let's have you actually record verbatim what was said and and your posture and and all the things and um and let's just look at it and see what you might be doing differently and stuff sure um and to me, like those were the moments that were both again, like you feel yourself being sculpted out of uh, out of stone because it's like kind of painful, but at the same time you're like, oh, that's what you mean by this, right. and you right. kind of have somebody who's not in the room, but kind of in the room to train you. So it was those sorts of experiences that, to me, it was like this. Okay, obviously, it would be way more efficient if everyone had to record every single session. Right. Because, I, I uh, you. <laughs> you know, like, and I get that there, there are technical and privacy issues with that and, and like not every patient may want to do it, but it just seemed like a natural thing if you're going to be in a training hospital um, that for the types of encounters where there really couldn't be someone in the room for various reasons, um, that you needed systems to, to be able to objectify like what was going on. Um, if only the, if the only reason to do it was to get 
more useful supervision and not be able to like dodge sure. your, your blind spots and stuff. Well, I've wondered, so it sounds like there's a different orientation towards technology then, uh, at least in the you know, long-term care clinic training, some aspect of the residency training between our programs. And I've wondered sometimes if the culture of an institution is such that people don't want measurement because then they could be disproven. And mm. so I wonder, so some, some attendings, one of the reasons I really respected Dr. Duffy was he would tell you what his prediction was. Mm. And that way you knew it and he knew it. And he was testing himself and holding himself accountable to mm -hmm. a prediction. I haven't found that that's the case as much in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And I've been curious whether that's a, a cultural thing that's pervasive or maybe just my way of eliciting a <laughs> bad reaction from people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the culture of measurement in, like, <laughs> in psychiatry is, is an interesting one. I mean, uh, even something as basic as when you have a complex patient being willing to get a neuropsych evaluation where like the, yeah. the neuropsychologist yeah. could come in with their battery of tests and provide you like a system-by-system -system breakdown of their capacities, uh, which psychiatrist as a rule didn't didn't do and part of that was um well is it really going to change my management or you know it's a lot of additional evaluation i'm not sure it's um, well so that so that question there is interesting right yeah. because will it change my management and i have had the experience that there isn't much that would change some mm -hmm. people's management, right. you know, and no amount of data will move a mountain. <laughs> right. So I think, I think rather than being uh, prescriptive of like, well, but of course you should measure uh, because this is medicine and come on guys, like <laughs> yeah. let's measure the brain, let's measure behavior. You know, it's a no brainer, so to speak. Uh, but I think one of the other really important skill sets I think of becoming a psychiatrist is sort of uh, working with resistance when someone doesn't want to change their behavior. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then understanding yeah. that in terms of like, not just being like, well, come on, like, why won't you change, you know, but to say like, that's interesting. So what exactly is it about this that you would think uh, is is not worth doing? Just really to, um, to roll with the resistance, right? And to mm. try to understand well, what is it about that additional thing that if you ordered that test and you got it back, you you wouldn't want to necessarily use the data? So I think I, I learned a lot around just trying to, you know, um, just accept that resistance as a valid thing mm, and then to exists. think it exists <laughs> yeah. and it's valid and we can't dismiss it and to think back around, well, why, why is that, um, you know – is it still worth measuring? How do we uh, address the, the the places where there's a particular concern, whether it's a privacy concern or a, I don't want to be uh, have my judgment usurped by this test kind of concern? Because um, then it sculpts sort of how you think about incorporating the measurement and like where in the clinical decision-making process, you, there maybe is a role for a test um, that helps somebody reduce their, uh, their you know, uh, the, the uh, uncertainty in situations where, um, you know, they really don't know what to do and there might be a place that, that something yeah. like that would be helpful. But um, 
So you've been very effective at doing that, at approaching people, uh, <laughs> you're a good psychiatrist, I guess, uh, of recognizing the resistance and then being able to navigate it. Um, you, you've been successful at implementing these digital phenotyping procedures on different units, which seems like a real coup. Well, I, you know, I don't know how successful we've necessarily been. I mean, I would say that my experience of, of trying to get uh, these kinds of measures into clinical services has been very different from my experiences trying to get a neuroscience perspective into those mm. same clinical services. Oh, how do you um, say that? That's interesting. Well, in other words, like, I, you know, going to the psychosis unit and saying, like, you know, we should be scanning everyone who comes here with a functional scan because I bet we can find that there's this difference in their brain that we should then use in part of our evaluation. And people are like, okay, we like the idea of the brain thing, but like, what exactly is it that you need to do? And how is that going to change uh, what, what I'm doing for this person? Um, and having to kind of really be uh, humble around the point of like, you know, that's a good point. I'm not sure it would change anything. <laughs> my, uh, right. you know, I, I would love the data, you know, yeah. from a research. But, you know, you're right. Like, I guess I can't tell you exactly how you would use it in a way that, you know, you, you might not just be able to kind of get that information from their behavior. So uh, the idea of sort of getting psychiatrists, whether it's residents or attendings, whoever, to to like really care about the underlying biology uh, of what they're seeing um, – you know, and I taught some of the clinical neuroscience curriculum for many years, and um, you know, it's really variable. Some some people are really interested in it. Some are just like totally lays over. Um, and initially, you you perceive that as sort of threatening. Like, why can't these people care about their organ of interest? Um, yeah. It's so irresponsible, you know, as things like that. But then you realize, you know, as as you go through the training program, like psychiatry is really hard to do well. Uh, just with the tool, you know, the tools that we have. And, and if I'm providing a tool that provides no additional information or, or helps that person's day go smoother or, you know, or you're asking them to learn a whole new field of information, like, of course, they should be skeptical, right? Yeah. And so the, the other experience, so I, I had done that for many years and tried to get, you know, uh, neuroscience, uh, you know, into the minds of the... Did the, you make Plato brains? Uh, no, but like, you know, I, I did try to help teach, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <coughs> what I considered neuroscience 101 that every psychiatrist sure. should sort of know. Um, and I think like, I still do that to some extent, although my approach has changed quite a bit. But uh, when we started getting more into the, uh, the digital phenotyping where we were taking uh, – people's behaviors and really trying to study them uh, more precisely, uh, the approach was quite different, which was more that, uh, you know, we could go to the clinicians and say, look, you're an expert at reading the behavior. I need your help to design a system that can do as well as you can, or even just pick mm -hmm. up on some of what you're picking up on. Um, and like I had already trained with many of these people, so I like I knew, okay, this person has got an amazing ability to pick up on those subtle tremors, right, or those mm. subtle dysarthrias, or those little uh, movements of the face that, in the context of an interview, they could infer was a sign of paranoia, right? Mm. 
And so to me, uh, that was fascinating that they had this ability, but I wasn't sure how much of it was real and how much of it was superstition. Um, but what was great about it was I could go to them and not say like, hey, I've got this technology. I'd like you to start using it. I went to them to say, hey, I really need to find ways of measuring this. Can you help me design a system that is as, <laughs> as efficient as you are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, the clinicians loved it because yeah. they were like, this is really cool. I've always wondered if what I'm hearing is real. Uh, and we could begin connecting them with computer scientists who were expert at decoding audio, you know, audio or you know, speech uh, you know, signals from audio and, and decoding uh, you know, facial movements from video and, and linking those people who were really interested in the mental health aspects but had a hard time gaining access to the data with the clinicians who were really fascinated by uh, the nuts and bolts of, of behavior, which, which was not everyone, but the, you know, certain clinicians had that inclination. And, and then just getting those two groups to be able to talk to one another, basically, and being the translational element of saying, you know, um, I consider myself like a, a mediocre psychiatrist, but I can at least, I know what she's pulling out and I know that here's how we were taught to think about it. And so let's design some systems that can pick up on it. Um, the psychiatrist loved it. The patients loved it. Unlike, mm. you know, uh, a brain imaging experiment, you know, we pay them, but like we're making them sit in this really loud tube and play these boring video games. Um, whereas like the experiments to, uh, you know, study patients in these interactions with a doctor uh, was for them really easy and fun. You got to talk to somebody uh, and talk to them about your problems. Yeah. Uh, some people were lining up to do the studies. And so, uh, it just created a different kind of, you know, we're right there on the ground, on the unit. We didn't have to leave the unit. We could just bring people into these rooms um, where it felt like, hey, this actually is like a sustainable way of, of digging into the pathology, which no one else seems to be really doing. So taking that thing where you just sort of go to a clinician and say, all right, you've got a lot of pearls, you know, you taught a bunch of them to me during residency, but let's see if we can like build a computer that like picks up on these pearls. Yeah. Uh, and then in my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, what we really want to do is design something that, uh, if we could scale that up, uh, we would be able to know like, which of these things are true pearls yeah. and which of them are just, you know, uh, like rocks or, or what's sure. like the kind of, uh, they, they look good, the but they're yeah. not, but they're not actually correlated with the outcomes that, that we think they are. So, um, and I think that including the clinicians in that process to say like, hey, look, you know, we're, we're all fallible. This is, you know, this is what you were taught. So we want to get back to sort of, you know, you've honed your interview to be efficient, but let's see if we can make it even more efficient. Let's see if you can, we can help you to train residents uh, or, or the next generation with um, these videos as well as, uh, you know, your kind of uh, classroom didactic style uh, mm. DJ. Well, it seems like it's a very effective way of doing it. <laughs> You're doing it right I think it could now. be, and I think it's still evolving. And I think it would be great if there were a whole platform around sort of when you come into a training environment, this is just the expectation, which is that like, you're going to be learning from a lot of pre-existing video. You're going to be learning mm. from a lot of encounters from your mentors that are being recorded. You're going to learn from your own encounters that are being recorded. Uh, 
and then uh, whether or not the mentor is in the room with you, there'll be all sorts of statistics about your interview that they can look at and be like, oh yeah, no, you really don't want to smile the whole time. <laughs> like that's going <laughs> to- Or not weird. smile the whole right. time. So, um, <laughs> And it's been fascinating in, in the lab because now we we record the dyads where the uh, the research assistants and stuff are are interviewing the patients, and so we can see what somebody looks like when they're fresh off the training, you know, uh, you know, to to start talking to patients, uh, like fresh off the medicine wards, or something. or just coming, you know, new research assistant joining uh, the lab gotcha, with no clinical gotcha. experience, and like how do they and. Conducts themselves in an encounter. Um, where are the, you know, what are the kind of intrinsic uh, skills that some people bring to that? They, they're easy, you know, they can build rapport quickly. Let's say, mm. um, or where, you know, where does that get in the way? Like if you're trying to create too much rapport, and therefore, like people don't ever quite ex expose their uh, pathology in some ways. Yeah. Um, and so it's. Uh, yeah, it's just interesting to in, in that context. I can require all the research assistants to to do it this way, and then we can see as somebody gets better at it, like what are they doing differently? And I just had this idea that you have a lab, wherein you are experimenting on how best to train a psychiatrist who are your research assistants. Mm -hmm. So they're like your, uh, I don't know, you're just guinea pigs, but like your subjects. <laughs> yeah, and you're changing the experimental conditions, and then. Are you are you still involved in the residency program? So you're translating that straight into the training of like MD physicians. Yeah, no, I mean that that would be cool. I mean, I guess my, uh, you know, if they were to ever come to me to say like, hey, Justin, we hear you have this great training thing. Can we use it? I would be like, sure, let's try it. Um, when we've tried to explore even using the pre-recorded videos for educational purposes, mm. the IRB has basically said like, nope. Huh. Um, and I mm. think that has just to do with like a lot of the ethics of sort of when you're engaging in research studies, you know, who's going to use that data and what are the uh, contexts that are considered appropriate. Um, I think down the line that may happen, but uh, you know, I'm not trying to foist it on them at this stage. There's a lot of other legitimate reasons why they may not want to go that route. Um, but just back to your kind of other earlier comment, like, you know, now it has sort of evolved into thinking about the lab as a little, uh, sandbox of, you know, different healthcare delivery and training, um, uh, you know, systems where, you know, what if it were possible to train somebody up to be really competent at doing interviews, both for information extraction, like just doing symptom evaluation, but also potentially providing therapy. Like right. if there were ways to short circuit this apprentice-based system by having a much more tech-enabled um, feedback system where your supervisor didn't have to watch like every hour of every video, but like it could identify features that, uh, you know, you start to gain some, uh, some trust around those features that uh, helps a, a more experienced clinician really read the report kind of of what you did uh, and then give you more rapid feedback. And then you're going to try it again and you can gradually uh, and maybe even rapidly improve. So, yeah. Um, I would have loved that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Well, it's just one of these, like you kind of are, 
amazed uh, at how inefficient you know the training process is, mm. right? And it's like, uh, as somebody who is concerned about the overall cost of healthcare and of mental health in particular, and, and sure. all of those kind of high level po policy things, like it seemed to me uh, pretty egregious how inefficient our training was, um, considering. Uh, that that basically bakes in a lot of cost, yeah. right? And that like it's not it's not really up to us whether that's uh, that's just the way we do it. You know, I think you know you're gonna have to sort of see the way things are moving in terms of value based care, measurement based care. Of like, you're not gonna just get to spend every hour of weeking, you know, doing evaluations. Like, it has to get more efficient. You have to be yeah. able to demonstrate. Why each question you ask is actually a, a, a good use of your time because As if it were a lab test or something, right? Because yeah. if you don't, if you're not able to at least demonstrate that value, other people are going to come in and do you, you know more mediocre evaluations, but the outcomes will be fuzzy, and and insurance companies or payers are going to ultimately say, well, we're only going to pay for that thing because this much more detailed, nuanced valuation costs way more and doesn't seem to be that more effective. So um, yeah, I think uh, same for training. Like if we can't figure out how to train people more efficiently, then uh, it, it could end up actually being uh, problematic for the, yeah, uh, for the field, you know, so. Well, I wish you uh, all the best <laughs> doing that. Yeah. And Maybe I'll go through residency again if you roll out your tech-based uh, open course on how to be a psychiatrist or well, something. Well, or you can help, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, disseminate it once it's out there. Be very can, happy. Can, uh, yeah, I'd be very happy to. Thank you. Thank you so much for yeah. taking the time to talk. That's great. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks again to Justin for being on the podcast. You can find Justin on Twitter at Justin Baker MD as in medical doctor. Again, that's at Justin Baker MD. You can also find him at his partners.org faculty profile page or on Google Scholar. Just look up Justin Baker. Thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast and especially to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast and to Ryan McAvoy for his help sound editing. A special thanks to you for listening. And again, my name's Daniel Barron, and I've been your host, and I'll see you next time here on Science et al.